the leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion. The Supreme Court. The court that dark money built. Breaking news at the Supreme Court. The landmark Roe v. Wade case. A woman's constitutional right to an abortion. My body, my choice. And Leonard Leo, who really is responsible for helping Trump fill the Supreme Court. A Supreme Court decision with dramatic consequences. The justices ruling five to four. You look at the decisions like Shelby County that attacks voting rights, and then you look at the dark money cases like Citizens United. It's not just us. The court is not in order. This is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and welcome to Making the Case. I am proud again to be joined by my colleague, my ally, and my companion, Hank Johnson, Democrat from Georgia's 4th District in Georgia, who, like me, serves as the chairman of his chamber's courts subcommittee on the Judiciary Committee. And we do a lot of good work together, and I'm thrilled that he participates in these podcasts. So, Hank, welcome. Good to be with you again. Thank you, Sheldon. Uh, or Senator, I'm sorry. Sheldon works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, uh, we're official today. So thank you, <laughs> Senator. It's always my honor to be in your presence. Thank you, Congressman. And ditto. Uh, and we are joined by former Attorney General Eric Holder, who was our country's 82nd uh, attorney General in the Obama administration, third longest serving attorney general in history, first black attorney general. And depending on how you view U.S. attorneys, he was either my boss <laughs> when I was U.S. attorney and he was the deputy attorney general under Janet Reno, or he was just the boss of everybody who worked for me, which <laughs> kind of is probably the more accurate way of saying it since I was a Senate-confirmed presidential appointee. But, Eric, it's wonderful, wonderful uh, to have you join us. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, uh, it's great to be able to interact with both of you in a non-hearing setting, which is always, uh, they tend to be a little painful. Uh, <laughs> but I can make sure that the audience understands no one has ever been Sheldon Whitehouse's boss. So let's just make that clear. <laughs> Well, listen, you uh, did a lot of litigation, the Department of Justice did, while you were attorney general before the Supreme Court. Your name is on one of the Roberts Court's most infamous decisions and a really awful voting rights decision in particular, Shelby County versus Holder. What has your experience been? You have a very long and distinguished legal career. You've been a judge yourself. You've been attorney general. What's your experience of the trajectory of this Supreme Court of ours that we now find ourselves having to deal with? Well, when you look at what I will call the democracy space, the Roberts Court is going to, over time, be seen as making some really fundamental errors and doing some things that have really damaged our democracy with a line of cases. It starts with Citizens United, goes through the Shelby County case, Bernovich, the Rucho case. All of these things have done things that favor the special interests at the expense of our democratic system. And the Shelby County case in particular, and I never call it Shelby County versus Holder. I don't want my name associated with that case. It's like, you know, Dred Scott versus Holder or something. You wouldn't want your name associated with the case. So I, as I said, I just call it the Shelby County case, was a particularly bad one. I mean, a 2013 decision that I frankly did not expect the Supreme Court would have the guts to actually do 
given the long history that we had had of reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act and the work, this is the important thing, the work that Congress had done in trying to reauthorize it in that last reauthorization that was signed by a Republican president, where hundreds of witnesses were called. There were thousands of pages of documents, specific findings made about the need for the continuation of the Voting Rights Act. And in spite of all of that, the Supreme Court did it its own fact-finding and made a determination that the Voting Rights Act was, in the uh, famous words of Chief Justice Roberts, no, you know, no longer necessary. Yeah, I tell you, that was very surprising that they would ignore the 10,000-plus pages of legislative testimony and exhibits and come to that conclusion almost out of thin air, Attorney General Holder. And by the way, I'm always honored to be in your presence as well. You've done such great work. How does your current work protecting elections connect with this current court? Yeah, I mean, you know, what the court unleashed in the Shelby County case is what I am doing now to counter as the head of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee in fighting uh, racial and partisan gerrymandering, which this court has said, you know, in terms of partisan gerrymandering uh, in the Rucho decision, that the Supreme Court, federal courts should not entertain partisan gerrymandering claims. If you look at what has been done in the states as a result of the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act by the Shelby County case, and let me just make that tangible for people. You know, the last time I saw statistics, about 1,700 polling places around the country have been closed post-Shelby County. Non-white voters are now seven times more likely than white voters to wait in line for more than an hour to vote. Residents of entirely black neighborhoods waited 29% longer to vote and were 74% more likely to spend more than 30 minutes voting. And all of this stuff can be traced directly to the Shelby County case. People need to understand that before Shelby County, the Voting Rights Act allowed the Justice Department in those areas that were covered by the Voting Rights Act to challenge, before they went into effect, things that states, localities, um, county entities wanted to put in place and say, no, you can't do that. That's inconsistent with the dictates of the Voting Rights Act. And as a result, most of those things were not put in place. Now, with the states, counties, local um, jurisdictions unleashed, they have done a whole range of things to closing polling places, requiring unnecessary photo ID. They've done voter suppression things that, again, would have been stopped before they were even put in place with a healthy and robust Voting Rights Act. And so that's the work that I have been about, to try to counter that which the Supreme Court allowed state and local governments to do. So the Attorney General has brought up this question of how the Shelby County decision stood on findings, which had a lot to do with how Southern legislatures were going to respond if that section of the Voting Rights Act were eviscerated. And we happen to have with us an elected United States representative from a district in Georgia who had a chance to live through the consequences of that decision and what happened afterwards. Representative Johnson, did the uh, Supreme Court get it right? And what was your experience in the wake of Shelby County? By invalidating the coverage formula that mandated certain covered jurisdictions get or obtain preclearance for any changes to voting procedures in their jurisdictions before implementing those uh, changes, to do away with that coverage formula and neuter Section 5, which re required preclearance, had a devastating and immediate effect 
almost with all deliberate speed, the Georgia legislature went into action, passed what's known as Senate Bill 202, and that bill... To be clear, Georgia Senate Bill. Georgia Senate Bill. You can't blame me for this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Senate Bill 202 made it much more difficult for people to exercise their right to vote. There was really no need for it. But, you know, this is what my friends on the other side of the aisle do. They try to suppress the votes of black and brown and elderly people, poor people. We saw precincts being shut down in areas, particularly rural, where black folks live, sometimes causing people to have to travel another 15, 20 miles to go vote. You know, they gave counties the ability to opt out of weekend voting, Sunday voting, souls to the polls, which had been so effective, even requiring— Which church congregations yeah, that's, to that's vote. that's right. Yeah. That's right. They even put restrictions on absentee voting, like requiring uh, identification to be sent along with the absentee ballot, knowing that people don't have copy machines at home, knowing how difficult it is for elderly people to produce a copy of a state-issued ID along with their uh, absentee ballot, which has to be filled out perfectly, by the way. And then the way that they construct those absentee ballots, the way that they word them are, are done in such a way so as to be confusing. And so, you know, even criminalizing folks for giving out food and water to those forced to stand in line to vote because they can't do absentee voting. So the effect of Shelby versus Holder was immediate, and it's had uh, long-standing and long-lasting effects. So let's get uh, lawyery for a minute here, uh, Attorney General. Representative Johnson has explained how when the Supreme Court found that uh, things have changed in the South and those protections were no longer necessary, they were wrong. But entirely aside from them being substantively wrong, is there not something wrong with a Supreme Court doing that fact-finding, whether they get it right or whether they get it wrong? Is that where fact-finding is supposed to take place in our judicial system? No, not at all. And that is an extremely important point. The Supreme Court is supposed to examine the record that has been developed in the lower courts and then base its determinations on the record that is presented to it. The court does not have investigators. The court does not hold hearings uh, so that witnesses come in and they can elicit testimony. The court doesn't do scientific examinations. You have the Supreme Court, in essence here, especially if you look at Shelby County and other cases that are in the democracy space, essentially legislating, but legislating without a, a good basis. You know, the Chief Justice famously said in the Shelby County case that America has changed. You know, I wonder if he would say that now, 10 years after the decision, when you look at what Alabama is doing, when they are totally ignoring the Milligan case where the court said, all right, you have to draw another opportunity district in Alabama so that African-Americans will have the ability to elect a person of their choice, given the history of racially polarized voting. And the state officials in Alabama have simply ignored them uh, and basically done something in defiance of this Supreme Court. And that's totally consistent with what officials did in Alabama back in 1963 when my late sister-in-law tried to integrate the University of Alabama. George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door, and that was in defiance of Brown versus the Board of Education. So 
you know, Mr. Chief Justice, how much has America actually changed? It's, it's clear that Justice Ginsburg, you know, had it right when she said this is going to unleash a wave of things that are inconsistent with the, the arc of progress that we have been making uh, when it came to uh, expanding our democracy. So, you know, you asked the question, what might Roberts think now looking back? But that in turn raises the question that they have had other voting rights related cases in the meantime. And the judges who decided, the justices who decided Shelby County have had every opportunity to look at the facts that they propounded in Shelby County and reach the determination that they were wrong and roll it back. What kind of problems does it raise when the court won't correct factual mistakes like the ones it made in Shelby County? Well, this court is not about trying to correct mistakes. This is, um, if it's not a partisan court, it's certainly an ideological one. And they have a view of the world um, that may be inconsistent with the facts, but it is nevertheless their perception, their assessment of, of, of the world. And they're not about the business of you know, checking to see whether or not an assumption they made 10 years or so ago or a finding that they made 10 years ago is consistent with the facts as they now exist or consistent with the experience that we've had over the course of those 10 years. No, they're quite happy with the world that they have created or the system that they have created that favors one side over the other, that is anti-democracy in the way in which it has um, played out in, in our society. You know, they are comfortable with the notion that we are potentially creating an American apartheid system when it comes to politics, where one party can get fewer votes and nevertheless have majority power. That's not something that disturbs this court, or at least six members of this court. You mentioned Citizens United earlier. Citizens United is another really flagrant example of these activist justices on the Supreme Court engaging in improper fact-finding. The two really appalling facts that they claimed to find in Citizens United were, one, all of this new money that they were letting loose in our politics was going to be spent independent of candidates' campaigns. And we know from a lot of expert research that that just isn't true. But the really flagrant one was saying that it was all going to be transparent, that voters would know who was spending the money so they could evaluate their motives. And there's just no dispute that that was false. Every dark money dollar that was spent, and we're looking at billions of dollars in dark money being spent in this election, rebukes that fact, and yet they won't go back and correct it. They won't change it. Even when John McCain and I wrote a brief, a bipartisan brief, pointing out the error of their findings in Citizens United, they just doubled down and stuck to their uh, fake facts. We can certainly look at that lack of transparency and how that has proliferated over the years in the electoral context. Let's make this even more timely, more contemporary, and, and look at the speech that you gave that dealt with the impact of dark money on the capture of the Supreme Court itself. All of this enabled by you know, what was supposed to have been a, a system that promoted transparency. And now you have all of these dark money groups with different shoot-offs, different affiliates, 
um, all on the same floor doing a whole variety of things. And you never really know, well, who is behind these efforts? You have to really do the digging that you have done and help expose to find out, well, who's actually behind some of these things. And it turns out you've got a relatively small number of people with huge amounts of money um, having an over impact on our society, on our democratic system, on, on our the day-to-day -day workings of our government and having a day-to-day -day negative impact on the people of this nation. And so this notion that, you know, in Citizens United, that transparency was going to be present or was going to be promoted is totally belied, is totally belied by the experience that we've had since that case. We've got a court right now that is probably captured by a handful of right-wing billionaires. Uh, we got a court right now that is experiencing a very deserved and self uh, created legitimacy crisis, and you've got a court that has justices on it who seem to be engaged in pretty flagrantly unethical and improper behavior, uh, to which they respond by simply refusing to answer questions. What do you think are the key steps we need to start taking to try to clean up the mess at the Supreme Court? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is kind of an attitudinal change. We tend to, we have come to think of the Supreme Court as if they were the oracles at Delphi or something. They are simply men and women who are federal employees. You know, they get checks from the federal government, just like I did when I was attorney general, just like you two do as, as a congressman and as a senator. And we need to take them off the, their, their, their pedestals and to see them as human beings who are working for the people. So with that in mind, we then also need to put in place systems such that we are learning about the interactions that they're having. There are federal disclosure forms that they need to be filling out in a more accurate way. We need to have a code of conduct for them that applies to every other federal judge in the, the country. And so that needs to happen. I also think that they tend to have too much power for too long. And I am one who thinks that there needs to, we need to have term limits. And this is something that is generally pretty widely supported by Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, and, and liberals. I think 18-year terms would be enough. That's three senatorial terms. To have somebody in a position of that much power without having to go to the people to have a, a recertification in it by an election or by something, uh, that to me, it seems, is um, is not good for our democracy. To have somebody on the court serving for 30 and, and 40 years in an unelected position is, I think, um, just not good for, for our, our system. But I also want to know, so what are we going to do come first Monday in October of this year? Are we simply going to ignore that which we have seen exposed about at least a couple of the justices, Justices Alito, Justice Thomas, are we just supposed to ignore the fact that, you know, they had these, I think, inappropriate relationships with, uh, with, with billionaires, and they're just supposed to continue in their roles with no kinds of consequences? So I, I think systemic change, we certainly need to have, but we need to also have individual accountability. And so I think if we do those two things, we can get the court back to, you know, a better place. Well, on term limits, you've got a good audience here with Representative Johnson and myself because we have term limits bills, and mm -hmm. we agree that there need to be uh, term limits. Representative Johnson, why don't you uh, chime in and give us what you think your key recommendations are to fix the mess? Yeah, term limits is an idea whose time has come. Our current system of lifetime tenure simply doesn't work anymore, and it imperils our democracy because it allows for justices to become so entrenched and unaccountable 
that they can feel that they don't have to adopt a code of conduct for themselves, just like other federal judges are bound by. They feel like they don't have to comply with the same rules that uh, apply to other federal judges and indeed to members of uh, Congress and folks on the executive side of the ledger. So they feel like they can get away with doing whatever they want to do because there are no mechanisms in place to hold them accountable. And so court capture, which is what we have now, uh, judges who were selected, sent through the Federalist Society pipeline straight from law school, then to uh, cushy jobs in the private sector, uh, on to uh, appointments to the federal bench. This is what has been created, and this is what is allowed to exist with lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices. So term limits is an idea whose time has come, and uh, I hope that we can uh, get a bill on the floor of the Senate uh, this session, at least a committee hearing uh, in the Senate. We do have legislation in the House, but there's no chance that it will come to uh, fruition uh, this session. Also, something that is important is we need to pass the CERT Act, the Supreme Court Ethics, Recusal, and Transparency Act, which is, uh, of course, your legislation, Sheldon, which you've introduced in the uh, Senate. And has cleared the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. That's right. So I'm carrying that legislation in the House again before we can actually see it passed and signed into law. We will have to retake control of the uh, House of Representatives, which I hope to do in this next session of Congress. And so when we pass that kind of legislation, which would require the court to adopt a a code of conduct that would set forth a mechanism whereby claims of um, recusals and ethical violations could be heard independently and justices held uh, responsible, along with other measures. So good legislation is what we need to do as legislators. Well, I'll wrap up because I think we are um, in a lot of alignment here on what needs to be done. I'd say pretty simply, we need to get out the facts to the American public about what these justices did, what the relationships were with the billionaires. We probably have only seen the tip of the iceberg here. And there are all sorts of blockades that have been put up by the billionaires and their lawyers to try to stop our investigation. Uh, But we are determined to proceed. And should the House return to Uh, Democratic hands. I think the investigation will pipe up very quickly uh, over on the House side. But basic facts the public deserves. And one of the reasons we don't have basic facts is because there's no process for managing an ethics complaint and finding the facts and determining what's going on if you're a Supreme Court justice. Whether you're a federal judge, whether you're a member of Congress in the House of Representatives, whether you're a member of Congress in the U.S. Senate, whether you're an executive official, if there's an ethics complaint, it lands somewhere, and where it lands, they have the ability to investigate and find out what the real facts are. Across the board, right up to the circuit courts of appeal, only the Supreme Court has hidden itself from that kind of basic due process accountability. we got to review this fact-finding problem that we've all talked about. I've got a law review article coming out. So if you think reading law review articles is fun, (laughs) I've got one for you. And then I couldn't agree more on the uh, term limits issue. I think there are definitely ways to get that bill passed. And we have a real opportunity to bring the court back to good health again. 
So, uh, Attorney General Holder, you are terrific to join us. God bless you in your work to uh, try to make sure that elections operate the way they're supposed to in our United States of America and everybody has a chance to have a ballot and to cast their votes and be a part of our vaunted American democracy. And to my friend and colleague, Hank Johnson, thank you again, sir, for being with us. Eric, thank you again. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you, Senator. Thanks for tuning in, listeners.